Just because he isn't Mr. Cool from New York City doesn't make him a dopey kid. Okay, this kid practiced CPR trained. He was a police explorer. He was a fire He's a cadet. Seventeen-year-old guy. That you know kid what? That takes what should he be doing? To a you know state? what? You don't know what it's like in that part of the country, and maybe you do. I do. I live you there. You do. You live there. Okay. <laughs> it's a part of life for them. They, that's, that's a the good kid. That is a kind of kid who can grow up and have a moral core. Welcome to another episode of Black in a Box podcast, the world is told by black faces in white spaces. How are my black faces, Dom? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. Fresh. Rested. I've been away, as have you, Alana. We've uh, been living life, living luxuriously. Mm. I'm so sick of hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> Jello, how are you? Yeah, enjoying life. Uh, and by life, I mean looking at you guys' Instagram to see the life that I can't quite be living right now. You guys are like my brother. Like last year, my brother got me some Bang & Olufsen earphones. And I think he really got them to show how well he was doing in life. And sometimes when I look at your Instagram, I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, can you, can you hear this? Can you hear how clear that is? That's how clear I hear every day, Angelo. That's what your brother's trying to say to you. But... You know, <laughs> at least he's spreading the wealth. You know, he's sharing the largesse. Big up Angelo's brother for those for those big <laughs> lessons. Um, I think we're going to start here. We're we not going to ask Alana how she is. No, she's been on holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask you. <laughs> I'm still on holiday time because I was like, yeah, well, that pretty much sums it up. I'm living <laughs> the lap of luxury. Yeah, it looked good. It looked real, yeah, especially when you found your it. tribe. I wasn't. Oh. I was in Lisbon and I was just blown away that there were a, a multitude of blacks. <laughs> like it's Portugal. So many. I know, but like I went up north and there were none. I was uh, the only one. Half of them are from London to be fair. Wait. You mean up north as in Blackpool? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, she comparing Lisbon to Blackpool. The cl the clue no, is the not in the name. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I was duped. <laughs> mm. But it was fantastic. And they played hip hop at every club. That's how I judge uh, a place is based on the music when I go out. And Lisbon like or Blackpool, we talk about here. <laughs> Lisbon. <laughs> <Okay. Yes>. Lisbon. <laughs> it was great. Oh, well, I was going to say, yeah, the whole tight Blackpool DJs. Um, Rob, well, I'm glad you're both back safe and sound. Thank you. Lock it up now for the winter <laughs> until December until I can get my holiday off. Where are you going? Just skiing again. Nice. Just, you know, got to keep it regular. Nice. Um, so, um, we're going to jump into a topic this week, which you wouldn't otherwise talk about on the pod. It being cricket, niche, British. In fact, it fits the theme of the pod. A remnant of empire. A, a symbol of control fading out of grasp. The little people rising up. And it's specifically we're talking about the Azim Rafiq racism scandal engulfing Yorkshire Cricket Club and just starting to singe some people's draws over at HS, H, HSBC. ECB, I'm sorry. ECB. Um, now, Azim Rafiq is a former cricketer for Yorkshire and he accused the county of racism, ignoring racism during his time there some years ago. And last week, the club's own investigation 
while finding with her was a victim of racial harassment, he's re being repeatedly called the term, and I'm going to trigger warning here, but just say it because it's what he has to feel himself, Packy, by a teammate, was nothing more than, and I quote here, banter. That was the club's um, official investigation. It did find Rafiq was guilty himself of racism in calling another player a Zimbo. That was a player from uh, Zimbabwe. And it's, you know, we've all seen this trip before and equating the two as the same um, and trying to diminish the treatment that he went through. And I mean, there was a, there was a, that was case closed as far as the club was concerned. Now, there was a bit of Twitter uproar, but by and large, nothing happened until the sponsors ditched, the title sponsors Emerald left, Nike left, and then the fallout since then has seen a parliamentary inquiry launched, one player banned from England selection, club legend and former England captain Michael Vaughan dropped by Sky for saying to Rafiq and three other players who were walking out into the field in 2009, we have too many of you lot, we're going to have to do something about that, end quote. We've seen the chairman, who wasn't there at the time of, of the racism, but he handled the subsequent inquiry, step down and do, do interviews citing refusal to change throughout the club. And another senior board member leave due to ill health in a move that may or may not be connected to all of the above. There's a lot to unpack here. Um, and I, as I say, this is less a cricket story and more a story of institutional racism, of kind of cynical opportunism on the parts of some in in given the history of institutional racism in this country um there's an angle about social conversation with regards to victim blaming and there's the sort of typical uh Yorkshire internal intransigence of the club we haven't done anything wrong i'm not racist but so i'm going to kick this over to start with to angelo um who has extensive background in cricket and i know he's got some things to say so it's a it's a very interesting. I'm going to start that again because nobody wants to hear me cough like two seconds in. Um, so it's a very I'm in a very interesting space for this because I, as you guys know, started playing cricket again this year after 13 years out, and I've played the majority of my cricket in Yorkshire, um, and I will tell this story because I think it's important to highlight in much the same way that. There was, I think there's been this thing in the media to try and kind of get individuals. So there, there was this idea of like, you know, Gary Balance is the issue because Gary Balance was one of the players that had used that racist term or um, Michael Vaughan being stood down because um, he has been accused. But I want to tell this story because I think it's bigger than Yorkshire Cricket Club and I do think it speaks to um, some overarching issues. So super quickly, um, there was a, a thing that happened at my uh, cricket club where um, some gypsy travellers uh, kind of got onto the ground. And I'm on the club's group chat. And the speed with which um, those people were being called scum, were being monstered, were being othered, led to me almost walking out of the club. Um and I was just, it felt like I was a single voice on that group chat just saying, can we not describe people as animals and scum? Um, and then there was a very funny little addendum to that where um, when they uh, moved on, 
there was this incredulity that they'd actually cleaned up. Um, so make of that what you will. But what the reason I say that is that, and I've been speaking to my friend about this, who um, is a Yorkshireman, um, and his frustration has been, this is going to be made out to be, it's just a Yorkshire thing. And I don't think it is just a Yorkshire thing, uh, as somebody that has been a human that's lived in this country. I think, <laughs> but it's true, it's true. Like, it, uh, the overarching thing for me is there's a kind of laissez-faire blindness that there is in this country when it comes to race. What do we do when we are confronted by past behaviours that are now unacceptable? This is something we've talked about on the pod before. Um, in terms of race, I grew up be, thinking that the term half-caste was the appropriate term. I It was much later in my life that I was called out on it. My response was not defensiveness. It was, oh, okay, if that's kind of causing you... Uh, pain, then it it do, it doesn't bother me the 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 term. I just want to get it correct. I just want to make sure that I don't cause pain for you. Um, there's so much to say, but I really want to focus on Azim Rafiq's hurt at Joe Root's. Uh, Joe Root came out and said that you know that there's an issue, but that he couldn't recall in his time um, seeing anything, uh, hearing anything, or seeing anything racist. And Azim Rafiq came out and said he was incredibly hurt by Joe Root's comments. Um, for me, it's not a surprise that the person that is not the victim of a toxic environment uh, does not remember instances of toxicity because it highlights that when we're in an environment that condones a toxic culture, we don't realise how filthy we're getting. Um, and I think that Joe Root was perhaps much more um, candid than he realised in saying that. Um, Dan, I know you're a, a Yorkshireman as well, and I know that like me, you are into all the sports. Um, what's been your kind of response, particularly as a Yorkshireman, because obviously I live in Yorkshire and there's been this sense of everything the ECB has done is uh, hurt the fans and not changed anything. I just wondered how you as as a Yorkshireman have responded to this. Um, I've, I feel, I kind of feel cheated because I remember during the, the time, like 2008, 2009, 2007, we had a really good team and we were competing for the county championship. And I remember like how much support was behind that team and how much people loved like Adil Rashid and Azim Rafiq. And I've, I've, yeah, I feel, I feel cheated by the club. Like I, I, this thing where it's, it's, it's bigger than Yorkshire Cricket Club. Yeah, it is. But the spotlight now is on Yorkshire for what they've done to this individual. Joe Root, you said you were talking about how much Rafiq was hurt by what Joe Root said. He released that pre-prepared statement because they can see this parliamentary inquiry coming down the pipeline and he's just trying to get ahead of it. He didn't want to mention Azim Rafiq in that two-page statement. Didn't mention his name once. They played together for what? 15 years well, it must have been approaching that um so i i'm pretty disgusted by the way the club still even at this point is trying to sort of circle the wagons if if you if you're sincere in in, in changing who you are and changing the culture at the at the club then you accept the punishment you you throw all the you throw the curtains open and as we say sunlight's the best disinfectant but they're still fighting against any kind of blame against any kind of acceptance about who they are 
if you don't like what's in the mirror, whose fault is that? The person holding up the mirror or yourself? Mm. So I'm, I, I, my disgust is reserved purely for the people at the club then and a lot of whom are still at the club now in hierarchy trying to fight against any kind of change. I mean, it's, it's never too late to say sorry and it's never too late to, to clean up the shop, but for that to happen, you know, you've got you've to be, be serious about wanting that change. And it, doesn't it also just look worse too because, um, you know, when those first investigations happened, they didn't want to release anything. First, they just made a, a statement of like, oh, yes, so Azim Rafiq experienced some racism. We can confirm that. And then it was like, okay, well, can you just release the in the report? And they're like, okay, well, here's our summary of what we read in the report. It's like, can you just actually release the report? And it just makes it actually seem worse. And it makes it seem like, well, from my perspective, somebody who does not follow cricket at all, is not a Yorkshireman, if you couldn't tell. Uh it's more suspect the fact that they're just like trying to not be so transparent with it. This is the first one that's actually surprised me, you know, like not what actually happened, but the way that Yorkshire Cricket Club responded and released their findings the way they did, because I didn't ever expect in 2021 that I would see people come out. It's, it's a free hit. It's so easy to, to kind of be in the public's good graces there. But I, I'm, I'm honestly dumbfounded. I I think the problem is it, it's this is like this is the problem here is how clubs sports clubs are set up in this country mm. so everything is internal everything's really small it's yeah. such a small world those people want will be there forever you play as a youngster you then you pass through the team and then you get to the captain and then you go probably go to be a coach and then you're head of coach and then you're on the board and then you're director cricket and then you go and work for the ecb it's the tiniest world like mm. ever so the problem why they couldn't release it first was obviously there was there, there was some dirty stuff in there it was redact i saw the thing and it, i've never seen something redacted so much <laughs> i've seen like the fbi release stuff about bin laden <laughs> and it's less redacted than that um but they, it's because they need to protect people and they they were afraid of legal repercussions um i believe what was what happened but yeah it's it's mad everyone says like oh you can tell yorkshireman but you can't tell him much like mm. It's mad to actually see that stubbornness on show, even in the face of like yeah. <laughs> something <laughs> this big. And even now, like they're they're still. There's been a letter signed by 14 members of staff there, say like they're furious that they've given issued an apology to him and that the club um, haven't used his character and <laughs> reputation against him. I'm sorry, like, I'm sorry. It's 2021. Like these these like they still think they can attack their way out of it. Like oh it's like we know a racism happened, but that's that's not you know a uh, oh, racism. Yeah, <laughs> it's a racist. <laughs> um, I think just on that, um, the outgoing Yorkshire chairman Roger Hutton said that there is no one at the club that he would quote personally consider racist, and that is such a British <laughs> mindset. Look, I've never seen racism, so therefore racism doesn't happen. Like. No one's ever been transphobic to me. There's a reason, you dumb motherfucker. Like, come come on. Like, it's, it's like... It, it, but the thing is, I've tried to choose as ridiculous an example as I can to highlight the point. I don't think in this room of kind of all white guys that you're going to kind of come across a lot of the isms that 
minorities are, are coming across. Um, and I think I think it's Zim Rafiq's been really interesting to kind of check in on 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 Twitter. Um, I don't know if you heard Darren Goff. Uh, his interview on Talk Sport, where he talks about him, and really, and it's sad that he, he had to do this, but he really did a good job of humanising him. Um, Rafik isn't looking for any kind of personal vengeance. That much is clear. He's kind of been like, this is not about Gary Balance. It's not about an individual, because retribution doesn't change what has happened. So often, I kind of, as a older kind of black guy, I'm always thinking, whatever happened to me would be worth it if I've made the way easier for someone else um and that's why i didn't think standing michael vaughn down uh was the right first step if he kind of has been in that dirty culture where they just haven't even recognized the uh like the, the 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 issues there needs to be an education before there can be an acceptance that there's been a wrong committed I, you know, I've seen this as a teacher before that oftentimes you really do have to explain why the thing that a person has done is wrong before they then recognize the need for balance or justice. Um, and But it does also, and we'll, we'll get onto it more when we talk about empire, it does also speak to this, there's two sides to every story and Britain is so trapped in this story of empire and they don't realise that there is a flip side to the story that has to be told uh, for it to make sense. And um, yeah, and also just quick note, let's be honest, the ECB are really not the best policemen for uh, this story. Or if you feel about the police that I do, they're the perfect policemen for this story. (laughs) (laughs) And this is it. And I've been... There's been absolutely amazing reporting on this by George DeBell, who was formerly, he's just left cooking phone, he's now with the cricketer, and he was the only one that basically went big on it, and he blew it all up, so respect to him. Um, and he'd made this, the further reporting's made the point that the Professional Cricketers Association at no point has supported Azim Rafiq, and, you know, anyone who's, like, played, like, local cricket, club cricket, they're always trying to get, like, more, like, why can't we get more, like, eight, like, more Asian players to get through the system? Why are the numbers dwindling above, like, club level? Why are they dwindling at, like, county level? There are all 24 members of the PCA are white. All 24. And, you know, if we're, we're talking about representation, how can we expect to increase the number of players when there's just a fundamental sort of lack of understanding and fundamental lack of representation of people that look like them higher up the chain. We've spoken about that so many different times. And it's it's interesting as well to me how this has been sort of reported on social. I mean, this is sort of my thing, but there's been so all that you see all the comments like, why did he go back to the club twice if it was that bad? This doesn't like this doesn't compute. Like ignoring that that's exactly what people say to like people who are the victims of like domestic abuse. Yeah. Because like it's not it's not that simple. It's not just a case of, well, you know, if someone's pushing you badly, you don't go back. And that just doesn't excuse the behaviour anyway. That doesn't invalidate the claims that he's made. And I've seen the even worse still, like other Asian cricketers lining up to say, well, I never suffered that when I've been playing club cricket in Yorkshire. And Zoom feet to his credit, it's been like, yeah, I'm really glad because you, I pray that no one else has to suffer what, I, like what I've had to go through. Um, but it's good that subsequently he has been 
he has been backed up by Ryan and Veed, the the Pakistan cricketer who said he heard what Michael Vaughan's alleged to have said about there being too many of them. So Michael Vaughan's tweets are incriminating. Bro, <laughs> bro. <laughs> who is it that he was saying needs to basically go around and speak to all Muslims? Is it Moeen <laughs> Ali? <laughs> yeah. You need to go and check that all Muslims aren't terrorists, basically. Oh, <laughs> so mad. Word. I've known he was like, he was that, like, like that. Yeah. But it's, I'm just like, people just clean up your tweets. Mm. Let me have my suspicions without confirming them. <laughs> <laughs> um, Honestly. There's, there's two last things I'm going to say. One about Azim Rafiq and one about how racism in general is hurting, is hurting England. So, um, I've played at a lot of cricket in a lot of places. The best cricket I've I've played at my not great level, but by far, or that I've seen, is the Bradford Leagues. The Bradford Leagues are some of the hardest cricket, some of the best cricket, like amateur cricket you'll see in this country. Do you know what makes a Bradford League so tough? It's where all the Asian players that don't quite make it in the Yorkshire setup uh, end up playing their cricket. And if you kind of ever go to a Bradford Lee game you you it's ridiculous how much talent is there um uh and yeah like I I remember playing a match it wasn't in the Bradford League but it was a 12 year old South Asian lad um and he took six wickets for 12 runs in his spell he was 12 and I I think it's important to say that he was playing a Saturday league county level match like I've never heard of him he didn't go on to become like the next Cristiano Ronaldo with cricket or whatever. In terms of how racism has hurt England cricket directly, Joffre Archer is not playing cricket at the minute because he, when he was like, my arm is hurting, they were like, ah, oh, you know, he just doesn't want to put in the hard yards. You know, he's he, like, he prefers the sun on his back kind of thing. And he was like, fine, I'll, show, I'll play. And he had a stress fracture in his arm that has never fully healed. So it was because they didn't believe the pain that he suffered. And black women everywhere are like, oh, I've heard this story before. Because they did <laughs> yeah. not believe the pain that he was suffering. He's now not playing cricket. And like, it's just, sometimes you should listen because it's like, England would very much like to have Joffre Archer playing in the Ashes. And maybe if they had Joffre Archer, they might still be in the Cricket World Cup. <laughs> well, see, this is what I don't understand about racism on a team in sport. I mean, I kind of get it from like a managerial perspective because you kind of just look at your players sometimes as game pieces um and not humans but when it's your teammates I just don't I never understood why you know your success depends on the other and I just don't understand how you play with someone for so long and can hold such problematic views and can tear someone down who's supposed to be your teammate I never understood that but you're talking about culture not sport this is something that happens throughout culture and this is the thing that my my friend who is a Yorkshireman keeps saying is he doesn't deny that there's an issue with Yorkshire but he does kind of say let's not pretend that this isn't a societal issue and I think his defensiveness is yes Yorkshire needs to kind of be looked at they need to be sanctioned but what they don't need to be what needs to not happen is that we go right we have sanctioned Yorkshire up to the gills we've solved racism in cricket that's just like saying, well, you know, I put a black square on, so like obviously racism is, is done. I agree. But in the meantime, Yorkshire needs to hold all this calm. Jason left at the end of 2016 and it just felt, wow, the temperature in the room had just been turned up. You got Andrew Gale coming in as coach uh, and Gary Balance as captain. Um, and these guys, for me, they were in Yorkshire through and through and they 
as they call it, the white rose values were embedded in them. For the first time, I started to see for what it was. Um, felt isolated, humiliated at times, um, constant use of the word packy. Um, in 2017 pre-season tour, we were in a, in a place and Gary Balance walks over and goes, why are you talking to him? You know he's a packy. Um, or he's not a shake, he's got no oil. And this happened in front of teammates. It happened in front of coaching staff. Uh, we were on a bus trip uh, in London to Surrey game and we went past a couple of men with beard and it was like, oh, is that your dad? If we go past a corner shop or does your uncle own this? And this happened in front of, again, Martin Moxon, Andrew Gale, uh, club officials, and it would never got stamped out. Everyone saw it. Uh, but because the institution and the environment, it becomes such a norm in there that um, I don't think anyone thought there was anything wrong with it. And that's probably why some people don't even remember it. I'd like to talk now about Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, <laughs> we don't need to delay this one. I don't want to talk about him. No, fuck him, basically. Yeah, basically. And his big baby tears. He's a he's a special kind of dumbass. <laughs> no, no, we closed. have to talk about him. We have to. <laughs> Why do we have to? Because this isn't about Carl Rittenhouse. This is a, the overarching theme that I wrote down when I was doing my notes is laissez-faire blindness. Okay, Carl Rittenhouse isn't on the news describing himself as a boy and kind of sniffling at his tears. Carl Rittenhouse isn't the one going, do you know what? That was a young man who is a patriot trying to defend his country. For the story that America has told itself since its inception, Carl Rittenhouse must walk free. For the story that America has been telling itself from its inception, Carl Rittenhouse must walk free. His crying on the stand, it evokes a humanity. And, and I use that word deliberately, deliberately. Because to be human in America has not always been a right of all the people that are human. So for the story that America tells itself, that motherfucker needs to walk free. Um, the judge has said that the people that were murdered are not allowed to be called victims. Yet he hasn't stopped them from being described as looters. For the story that America tells itself, he has to walk free. America has never shaken off the problems that it has when it comes that it has to do with race. They call it the original sin, and you've got the Republican Party going, "Look, yeah, racism was bad, but Obama, so let's call it quits." You cannot consider the actions of the judge of the media. Dom, I'm going to send you a clip of this Fox interview where. Uh, and I was listening to it, and I wasn't really focused on it. And I and I thought, yeah, wow, Fox are really taking this young Matt to task. Nope, it was they were taking the prosecution to task. They were taking the DA to task. Prosecutor's a joke. This prosecutor says you can't defend yourself. That is insane. This all started with Jacob Blake. The prosecutor's office, corrupt Democrat district attorneys release a falsely edited piece of footage to make it look like this was a cold-blooded racial execution attempt, when in fact, Blake was a bad guy who was a rapist. They were saying that he was perfect on the stand. He was a young boy. 
Yeah, he made a mistake by having a gun that he wasn't allowed to have and crossing state lines and killing two people and shooting a third. But this was a ma- this was a boy that was in fear of his life. He's called a boy. He is humanized. You've got a young guy who was a, you know, a, a new CPR. He was a police explorer. He was some kind of fireman cadet. He was a good kid. He went there to clean up the, the uh, uh, graffiti on the buildings. He has, he has exemplified on that witness stand what every defendant should learn to do, and that is to speak clearly, directly. He stops exactly where he should stop. He doesn't add any further information. He listens exquisitely to the questions and he you know there isn't even a need on the part of the defense attorney to object to this prosecutor who is so desperate so out of control that he's even got the judge going through the the roof in that courtroom white boys white men are constantly humanized okay what about when he was posing for photos when he was on bail but this (laughs) but you're, you're feeding into the central argument which is why we need to talk about this in the same way that just two minutes ago I was saying, I don't think it's the right thing for Michael Vaughan to be stood down if he doesn't understand kind of the harms that have been caused. He, like understanding helps us move forward. This case isn't about Carl Rittenhouse. It's about the story that America tells itself. And for, the, for that kind of story that they tell themselves, um, he has to go free. Because I was listening to Fox and they kind of also made this point. You know, this happened in the same place that Jacob Blake did. And then the guy just out of nowhere went, who was a rapist, by the way. And I was there like, hold on, there have been so many black men killed. Let me go back and remind myself of a Jacob Blake case. Back turned to the officers, shot seven times. You know, so uh, the reason we need to talk about it is because by not talking about it, what I don't want to do is just monster and other Carl Rittenhouse. Did he do an awful, terrible thing? Absolutely. Should there be justice for the victims' families? Absolutely, yes, they should. But we need to consider the systems that create Carl Rittenhouses, and that's why we need to talk about it. I mean, I think, like, uh, you're a better person than me if you can give grace to this person in this situation. Because I'm just... I I see what you're saying, uh, but I'm just... So tired of like just send him send him away, send him to jail. Like I, I understand like the systems you're talking about and everything and why he's been humanized and this and that, but I'm just tired of seeing it and I'm like now they're talking about, you know, it being a mistrial, most likely, uh, so nothing probably will happen unless, you know, the prosecution appeals or I don't know, or there's like a new prosecution, I don't know. But um I have no faith that he will receive like any real repercussions. That's what gets me every time because I want to laugh at the tears and the performance from the other day. Oh I want God. to because it was that it reminded me the latest season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry is blackmailed into a ridiculously poor actor being cast in one of his shows and her audition tape it's that bad it's laughable and that's what I initially thought of Carl Rittenhouse on the stand like the crying the attempt at crying, it's its so bad. But then when you think about it logically and it's like, this motherfucker isn't gonna go to jail. Yeah. This motherfucker is gonna walk free. And that's when I stopped laughing, but it was dreadful. So yes, I'm done. I think it's really important to say, I don't disagree with anything that I've already said. And I'm also not just doing this thing of fake playing devil's advocate, but we have on this podcast, when so many young 
black men have been killed talked about they are just children. He was 18 years old. And so the question for me is, what is he consuming that he feels? Whether you kind of think, if you think, oh, he just went there to kill people, then that's one thing. But if you don't believe that he just went there to kill people, what what does that say about the world that he lives in that an 18-year-old genuinely thinks that the best way to do it is to go there with a gun and f- for the police that were there to say thanks buddy you're really helping that's that's my thing it's like i don't believe that throwing locking him up and throwing him away will solve the problem it might ha- get, make you feel a little bit good that this little thing has happened but the same toxic environment is still there so that's kind of a bit of a provocation from me to to all of you but it's it's a symptom it's a symptom of something broader isn't it and i think for every one of these cases that we get where someone does face real retribution there's less people that are more inclined to do that in the future so it's like it's a tiny tiny it's kind of like a bandage on the situation i mean we know that it's not going to fully solve anything but it's part of it it's just like with the Yorkshire cricket thing if Yorkshire released their statement said that it was banter and it was just left at that and there was no repercussions that came afterwards then nothing would change. So these little things, I think, when you do, when people face, uh, like Devic Chauvin, when when he got when he got sent down when he wasn't expected to, that changes something a little bit, a little bit. People are held to um, held to account for their actions a little bit. I think it does change something somewhat. Like the fact that he's most likely gonna walk away scot free. Why is anyone ever gonna change their behaviours off the back of that? Bro, he's not only gonna walk free. He's probably gonna get damages. Yeah, he's gonna be <laughs> caked after this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, fucking what's his face? Zimmerman got a book deal, <laughs> so I, I I see what I see what you're saying, Angelo. But I, I agree with what you're saying, Angelo. But yeah, I just in my eyes, uh, for my own good health, I had to just stop trying to defend America until it would defend itself. <laughs> and the only the the mistake. In this, in this killing, was that he all the people that he killed were white, and that's the only reason this. Yeah. There's even a question that he might go down. That's the only reason there's a question, mm-hmm. because everyone he killed was white, and even though they were sort of white liberals. Yeah, it's like, uh, what does? That's why you've you've got them sort of contorting on on Fox News and all the different channels trying to figure out what to do about this situation. Um. There you go. An ugly cry will get you out of some holes. The royals are in chaos, Dom. (laughs) (laughs) The royals are in chaos. And you've got Britain dishing out trinkets whilst the (laughs) empire is shrinking. Crumbling. Crumbling. I know you wanted me to give a big up to our man, Marcus Rashford. Rashford. He got got a nice medal pinned to his chest. <laughs> He'll be able to melt that down in the future at some point if the football doesn't work out. Feed some more kids. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I I believe this 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 act has got a bigger significance, hasn't it, Dom? It has. Yeah. I mean, the only reason that I wanted to to broach this subject briefly is Marcus Rashford doing wonderful things, amazing young role model gets his what was it OBE MBE MBE mm-hmm. yeah gets his MBE and then around the same time we've got in Barbados they had their first presidential election 
So they're leaving the empire. I don't even like using that word. I hate using that word. So whilst he's getting this medal, which says he's a member of the British Empire, you've got a neighbouring country to where his family comes from. So he's St. Kittian, and Barbados isn't too far from St. Kitts, and they're leaving. So I just have this really, it's kind of like a, a conflict in my mind because I've been reading around these these royal honours and black people and brown people who have received them. And it made me think, if something happens in my life, which means I get that letter through the through the mailbox, which is I'm getting an MBA, I'm getting a knighthood, if I'm going to think even think even more loftily, um, would I accept it? Would I accept it? And my initial thought was no, because I don't like what it represents. I'm British by birth, but I'm British Jamaican, and I'm very, very proud of the fact that I'm Jamaican. But then I also think about if one of those letters was come through my grandma's mailbox, she'd probably wear that thing on her chest for the rest of her <laughs> life. <laughs> because as much as she will sit and cuss about the UK, about Britain, about the royal family, she wants nothing more but acceptance. She just wants that acceptance. She wants to be part of it. She wants to feel loved by it. Um, so what I was doing was just, just kind of looking around at a few different people who have accepted these awards and the rationale that they gave behind it. And I think David Olasoga, he put it really, really well. So I think he got an MBE not too long ago. And a question that he asked himself when he was pondering whether or not to take it was how he would feel if the honours list was announced and there were no black people that were named on there, no brown people that were named on there. And that's kind of what, what drove his decision to accept it. But that's, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask to the table, is, is what is your opinion on these kinds of honours and would you accept one? No. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like it, 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 in, it, you are, you're validating it. It's okay if someone else wants it, but that's not for me. I mean, I guess it just really depends on what the honour is, what it's for and who it's given by, because let's say I got some equivalent in the States during the Trump administration, which would just <laughs> never happen. I almost always wish that there was something I was involved in that would get me to go to the White House just so I could be like, <laughs> like at Trump's feet. Anyway, didn't happen. But um, that I wouldn't accept. But I don't know if it was like a maybe during the Obama era and Michelle Obama was going to give me <laughs> some sort of award, then it would be yes. Um, so I guess it just really... I guess it just really depends on what it's for. But in the case of Rashford, I mean, he's getting this MBE for the work that he's doing with trying to get kids fed in schools, right? And I'm sure he'd probably rather just have the kids actually fed yeah, of course. than to have the medal. Yeah. So, I don't know. Uh, no, I wouldn't accept it. And you, you all knew I wouldn't <laughs> accept it. Like, I think you guys are all expecting me to kind of blow up on this, but no, no, I wouldn't accept it. Empire is a euphemism. There's a duality to the story that is uncomfortable. For some people, empire is this signalling of the uh, of this idea that the sun never set on the British Empire of a time of greatness. I think a lot of people that kind of talk about taking our borders back, this is what they believe they're hearkening back to. There is a flip side to, to that coin, which is um, slavery, uh, dominion, uh, the way that people are viewed, which you can link directly to the Yorkshire scandal. Um, so for me, by accepting that, I would be with, accepting it with the way that I view the world and the way that I kind of, the research that I've done, 
uh, I would be tacitly kind of admitting that I didn't believe in the courage of my convictions. So, no, I would not accept it. Two questions to that, really, really quick questions. One, what if they changed the name so Empire wasn't in it? And two, do you think that there is something to be said for, say you receive one of these honours and you're interviewed on television and your name is followed by the letters of whatever honour you received and young black boys and girls see you and see that they, there is something that they can they can potentially achieve in their life. And Angelo, he was raised in a similar way to, they were, to, the, to the way that they were and he was able to go on and do this. So to the first question, no, because it's not about the name, it's about what it represents. And to the mm -hmm. second question, I would simply say um, the master's tools will never be able to dismantle the master's house. So whilst I get what you're saying, um, what I'm trying to do is, is break the table so that we can all sit fairly and eat together. And me saying, look, I navigated my way through this unfair system, and so you can too. Why don't we change the system? That's how I, that's how I feel about it. Likewise, likewise. Let's build a new table, right? So we're going to finish up talking in depth about sort of mental health in relation to, to other topics and other things that are going on. And this episode, we're going to reference Colin in Black and White. And that's a show made by Ava DuVernay about the ostracized NFL quarterback, Colin Kaepernick. And the series shows the sort of struggles and micro and macro aggressions that he underwent going up as a black man um, raised, he was adopted and raised by two white parents in from Wisconsin in California. And I thought it was super interesting this series. Um, I thought it was super interesting this series, in particular talking about the sort of these microaggressions and little things that you, you don't notice and help sort of show why he became the person he came, but it's less about him and more about how these things manifest themselves. Um, and I know with you, Alana, there's certain things which sort of chimed with you. <laughs> My light-skinned biracial brother. <laughs> the light-skinned angst, I call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, Andrew, you, you had a sort of particular view about, about the effect of these microaggressions that they have on, you know, on, on us black people growing up. Yeah, um, I, I went through the whole thing in um, a day and a half. And what really stood out for me was there was a number of scenes where they're not big moments, but it's the person that's looking at you. It's kind of just changing the way, changing your outfit on the third day so that you can't be considered hood. It's kind of the whole thing with hair, I'm sure all of us that kind of had those issues growing up, kind of the politicization of hair. But it really just highlighted to me um, in my own journey the, the role that those kind of microaggressions have had. And when I think about the things that have caused me great harm, it's not what people in this country would define as racism. You know, somebody came up to me and shouted the N-word. Nah, stuff like that doesn't bother me. It's the... Um, I keep being told I'm qualified and that I just need a bit more experience, but then I'm more experienced than the person that gets hired. And then actually it's not about experience. It's just sometimes the way that you speak to people or, you know, and all of these tiny microaggressions. And, um, and I think I've told this story before on the pod, but so I'll say it very quickly. I remember in my final year at the last school that I worked at, uh, sitting in the staff room and uh, one of the science teachers came in and with this laugh on his face just said uh, 
you know, we've uh, just spent a long time talking about your penis in my year 10 class. But, and then it was this thing of like, it put me in a very weird space um, because I was like, that's really messed up. But I also knew that if, uh, I also knew that if I kind of spoke about it in that kind of, how dare you kind of sense that I would have broken the kind of, the, the, the spirit of bonhomie, bonhomie that was in the room. Um, and so that is the kind of microaggression where you just go, do you know what? I can't, I can't deal with it anymore. And it's, it's so damaging. And it, then it explodes out in rage or it explodes out in, you know, uh, alcohol abuse or things like that. So um, I thought it was a beautiful way of highlighting the international issues that there are of being a specifically a black face in a white space. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's yeah, this is it. There were so, so many little moments which I was like, oh, I've seen that. Yeah, there was there were so many little moments which I saw and I was like, yeah, that's that's me or that's my cousin. Like, I remember my cousin getting, uh, he was kicked out of Homeforth High School because he had his head shaved, had a one all over, and they said that's not an appropriate haircut for school. And at the time, what? yeah, Homeforth High. He got suspended, and that's why I ended up leaving because he had a he just had a one buzz cut, <laughs> and he had one like he came to school. He had to have black school shoes, so he had like black. Uh, he had black tims, and they're like, "We can't wear those welly boots." And he's like, "What are you talking about? They're just black Timberlands." Wow. And then he got <laughs> and uh, he got suspended for that as well. And then that's when he left. How much older than us is he? James is like five years, five years older than me. Bloody hell! So it's it's not long. No, it's not. Half of the same teachers will have still been there when we were the there. The same teachers, and it's just they—they've grown up that they've grown up like that. So those views that they hold are still going to be there, and it's what we—what we're talking about previously. I think with when you talk about Michael Vaughan as well, Angelo, and when you you just rise through a system, you rise through an institution with these views. There's nothing's going to change them mm-hmm. until something changes them, and. Uh, yeah, it was really sort of really uncomfortable to to, to see in some parts. And like there's a, there's a bit where he's going to play baseball and he's constantly in hotels and every hotel, he's getting stared at. The one's watching him. Can I get one of these? No, you can't, you already had one. And then his mates just going and getting round and round and round and can get as many ice creams as possible. And then having to sort of watch yourself. He wanted to like, can't even get an apple. And it's that that bit of discomfort when you're in a, somewhere doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing, but worrying that someone's going to decide that actually you're not you're not the type of person that we want here. Yeah, it's something that I definitely witnessed too. From the I mean, I've had my experiences, but watching somebody else go through it can be just as impactful as experiencing it yourself. Because I had nary a single black friend growing up in school. So all my friends were white. Um, And as I said, like I'm half white, so I'm lighter in complexion. And there were the occasional black people who were in Palm Springs, dark skinned. And the way that my friends would treat them or the things that they would say about them and then turn to me and be like, oh, but you're not like that. Mm. Like that was equally as damaging to me as if they had just said it to me in the first place. Yeah, and I remember it having similar when I was at school. Like when I think I probably mentioned it on here before, but when you're the age where you can start to go to pubs, 
when you can sneak into pubs, not that you're actually <laughs> legally in there, um, but just having people who were like 20 years old, but they knew about me and just saying the most blatantly, offensively racist things mm. in my presence, but being like, not you, Dom, you're sound, you're sound, you're a good lad. Yeah. It's because it's banter. It, one, it's banter, yeah. but then two, it's the effect of, so Angelo said there that typically what we face is we either like spontaneously combust and we go off in this fit of rage or we start some kind of alcohol abuse. The typical way of dealing with this thing is you just carry it around with you. You do what you need to do in that instance. You do what you need to do to survive. Mm -hmm. And then you just have to go home and think about what's happened. Yeah. And it happens hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times across your life as a black person when you're moving in the kind of spaces that we have done. Mm -hmm. And that's the most damaging thing because usually there is no real outward expression that comes off the back of it i really don't think there is it's just the case of now as a 30 year old there's certain times where i'm like something like you just explained there within palm springs or trigger a memory a memory in me and now i just have to deal with that memory all over again and it's just it's just always there it's always there it's just when it's going to come out and then you find yourself in certain circumstances like for instance when i started at deloitte and certain things you can tell the direction a conversation is going yeah. in you can tell when someone's going to say something. You can tell it it's coming. Yeah. And it's just mm -hmm. that feeling. Like I always say that that racism in on an individual level is is almost like it's a feeling. You know it's coming. You can mm -hmm. feel it is coming towards you. And it's just bracing yourself. And it's bracing yourself and explaining to yourself that right this is going to feel like shit. You know the options that you have at your disposal in terms of how you're going to be dealing with this. You're probably not going to have a go at this person. Um if, if you do, you're probably gonna be the person that comes out of this worse. Um, and then you have to have that conversation with yourself and deal with all of the all of the things that come with it. And it's, it's shit, it's shit. I'm 30 years old and when it happens today, it's no better than when it happened when I was 14, 15 years old. Even though I feel like I'm better equipped to deal with it now, even though I feel like my words carry more weight, even though if I was in that situation and someone was saying something, the chances of me getting fucked up from it are very, very slim now. It still hurts just as much and it still weighs on you just as much. Like you feel like you can respond better, but yeah. it still hurts. 100%, yeah. yeah. It's like my 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 kickback is better. Like I can, I can actually explain rather than feel like I just want to punch you in the face. I can explain to you why what you said is offensive. But then at the same time, it's like, but I've just had to deal with that. And now I know that everybody that's in this, in this situation with me, everyone that's in this conversation with me is gonna go on thinking about this. And I, it's, it's strange, but I typically don't care what other people think of me, but in these circumstances, it's like, well, now he's gonna be judging the way that I responded to that, either positively or negatively. Yeah. Oh yeah, you gotta let go of caring, giving a shit about how yeah, people. I. It's funny because you, you know, just talking about how these things just stick with you, and you have mm. to constantly work on them. I was literally. I go to therapy. It's great. So first, first of all, therapy, everybody. Um, and this is exactly what we talking we talk about, and how sort of the hurts that I experienced as a woman of color when I was well, a child of color. Yeah. Um, have stuck with me and how even though I can intellectually feel like I fucking love myself, I'm awesome, like I love black people, I love being black, I would prefer to be like black and Mexican just like I am. Um, it, 
there's an internalization that has yielded sort of negative patterns throughout my life. So like when I was younger, I had an eating disorder or like when I overspend to make myself feel better or like you said, drinking or alcohol or any sort of those sort of like negative, self-destructive behaviors that you do to kind of validate yourself it's crazy like the layers to that and the only thing that i could really say is i cannot be a big enough advocate for therapy for all black people yeah what well, that should be our reparations absolutely <laughs> yes free therapy for all black people yeah what upsets me like about myself is the fact that i'm still sort of counting the lasting impacts of, of mm. these microaggressions of people questioning who i am and of me like like you say embracing yourself for these situations often means you're anticipating it so you'll change your behavior and yeah. I, the, the most obvious the light bulb moment for me was when i think we mentioned it when we'd watched mangrove and i was like why is this guy still why is he getting so angry why is he kicking off so much and there was when i realized like that's what i've done i shrunk i shrunk myself over the years and i've sort of dimmed my own flame is a means of hopefully not having to go through as many of these microaggressions Just protecting yourself yeah and no one should ever do that no one should ever have to do that and to to change your thinking to stop doing that is a long 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 process so as you yeah. say that's probably where then of course the, um Sorry, Dan, I was just going to say, and then, of course, the difficulty becomes is that as you kind of begin to do the therapy and kind of deal with the kind of past, I've recently discovered discovered that I'm like, I, I question myself now, am I doing this as a response to or because this is my authentic self? And so, and mm. I kind of can very much lose a lot of time going, well, um, I'm going to this social function. I really need to think about what I'm going to wear. Because I really need mm. to make sure that I kind of don't in some way. And then you go, well, hold on, I can just be myself. And then it, you go back to that central question of uh, who am I? And, and then you realize, <laughs> or what I've realized is um, the impossibility of detangling the effects of those microaggressions on uh, the person that I've become. So um, I think that what makes me kind of laugh is that I can't imagine a world where I'm not the person I am today and I can kind of very much like I can reconcile that in my mind but then I'm still trying to undo the effects of microaggressions and it's like well those two things I don't know if they can coexist because I am who I am because I've been through what I've been through. Those microaggressions and the way that you shrink yourself the way that you edit your behaviors etc they can also make it harder to even know who you are. Like I, I think genuinely, once I left Deloitte and I kind of didn't have to have my guard up so often, um, I started to have a, a, a greater understanding as to who I am as a person because I wasn't having to have two different personas every single day of my life. And it was me then starting to, at 27 years old, learn what and who my authentic self was and I know that that is something that you probably do typically go through in your mid-twenties, but it was such a night and day moment for me. Like it was like something had literally physically been lifted off me. And I 100% attribute that to the fact that I wasn't facing these microaggressions every day. I was able to, to glide through the world just being what I wanted to be rather than what I felt that I needed to be in those, those day-to-day um, occurrences. So 
I think, yeah, the impact of kind of getting out of circumstances like the ones that you've explained in the um, in the Kaepernick show, yeah, they're, they're, they're long-lasting and very damaging. Can I ask a quick question for the group, just off the back of that? Because, again, just talked about this in therapy, this idea of, like, when are the moments where you actually feel like your authentic self? So I, I always say this in Jester, and I've said it several times in our group, but I feel like my life took a turn for the better when I stopped wearing button-down Oxford shirts. And whilst there is something that's literal in that, I think what I mean figuratively is is quite clear. I was dressing and trying to live and behaving like a middle-class white bloke from the home counties who lives in Clapham. That's not me. And I think my authentic self came once I felt like I, I didn't need to do that. Angela, what about you? When do you feel most like your most authentic self? By myself listening to music where I don't feel guilty for listening to like some hardcore early 90s New York hip hop one song and then like Willow the next song and then like <laughs> like some scream metal the next track and then some opera the track afterwards. I'm just like, no, I'm just bopping. But I think it's interesting that it's by myself or when I'm with family, mm -hmm. like, you know, that's the same thing. Mm. Yeah. Dan? Um, I would say most of the time now. That's good. That's awesome. I would say most of the time. Like, I, I don't know, like particularly like the last, it, I think it does coincide particularly with like this latest job. I, I Because I'm just, I feel like I'm just doing it for myself now. So I'm not, I'm literally, I don't, I'm not worried about anything else. So it's like, it's just like, I feel like I'm, I'm in my groove now. Like, I think most of the, most of my wardrobe does need to go, but <laughs> <laughs> it's annoying because I've been doing this thing where I'm not allowed to buy any new clothes this year unless I get a voucher and what, we're in November and I'm, I'm nearly there. But as soon as we hit January 1st, it's, it's, it's all gone. <laughs> I'm going to undo all the work. But yeah, I'd say most of the time now, um, you know, you, you never truly get there, but it's, it's, it's a process. I keep working towards it. You? Uh, same as Angelo when I'm by myself. First thing when I wake up in the morning and I haven't spoken to anyone, I haven't looked at my phone, haven't done anything. It's the, and when I'm with my family, it's the only time that I feel like Alana. And then as soon as I hit the door or open my phone, it's like a spiral to not knowing who I am by the end of the day. <laughs> the thing is with you, when I still, when I see you through like Nick's Instagram, it's I'll let you know now that's still definitely you. <laughs> it it's is. absolutely it's not the complete me, I oh, guess I should okay. say. Yeah. I feel like there are various aspects of my personality that are authentic, mm. but showing up as my whole self, mm. I don't feel like my whole like illuminated self mm. except when I'm either with my family, intimate family, mm. or just alone. That's fine. Or with Nick, actually, to be fair, yeah. Um, the, the main thing I was saying there was like, he does a lot of like, when he does like candid filming of you like on the bike or something like that. That's what I mean, is when you, oh, yeah. when you don't know he's like filming it. Like, uh, uh, she's in the vibe. <laughs> great to see. Thanks, guys. That is the end of another episode. Uh, I've been Dan. I've been Dom. Ich bin Alana. And I've been Angelo. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time. Take care, guys.